Amen. Last time Jesus, um, the passage ended with Jesus' invitation to come out from the burden of legalism and to find true rest in him. You remember he said, come unto me, you that are heavily burdened, I'll give you rest. Now in chapter 12, the opposition to Jesus hits an all-time high. I guess maybe we could say all-time low. Um, the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day, the strict religious rulers, they get so mad at Jesus that they start planning and plotting his murder at this point. And so you wonder, how could somebody get so mad at Jesus? And uh, we're going to talk about that as we go through Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place, there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him? Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value, then, is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and his name Gentiles will trust. Jesus and his disciples broke the man-made customs of the Pharisees continually, and particularly about the Sabbath, right? And this is why they just got so mad at Jesus. They say, well, he's breaking the Sabbath, so we need to have him put to death. Now, Jesus and his disciples, they never broke God's law in the Old Testament, but they broke the man-made traditions that were developed by the Pharisees around the law. Uh, the, for instance, the fourth commandment, it says, 
don't work on the Sabbath, right? That's all it says, don't work on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees, they made hundreds upon hundreds of rules then of what constitutes work on the Sabbath. You see, they're trying to be helpful. You know, they were really trying to be zealous and helpful by making all these guidelines to say, well, well, the fourth commandment says don't work on the Sabbath. Well, let me help you by telling, you know, what is work, right? Now, God's people in every age and culture, I'm going to read a quote from the ESV study Bible because they said it better than I can. God's people in every age and culture have come up with ideas and advice about how the moral teaching of the scriptures should be obeyed in their own time and place. Often these ideas became translated into rules for avoiding temptation in basic areas where God's people must interact with a pagan culture, whether over clothing, food, speech, or entertainment. What that's saying essentially is throughout church history, there have been people that have come up with advice and rules about how to obey what God says in their time and place and in their culture. You might say, yeah, I'm familiar with that. I was a Methodist and they had a handbook of how you should dress and how you should, you know, uh, conduct yourself and you can't go to movies and you can't do this. Pentecostals did the same thing there. Uh, Lutherans had the same sort of thing. Codes of conduct that man has come up with. Um, you know, telling you essentially how to apply the scriptures, right? I mean, in fact, just the name Methodist, that's where it came from, is because the, developed, the people that developed Methodism, they came up with a method of how you should live, and that's what it means to be a Methodist, is following that method, right? Now, as helpful as those things might have been, right, we have to always be careful that our man-made rules and traditions and advice don't ever get elevated to the place of Scripture, right? Now, that's what the Pharisees did. And that's what the problem is here in this passage, is they're so focused on their man-made traditions around the Sabbath that they see Jesus and his disciples doing things that don't fit in their understanding of the Sabbath, and they actually get so focused on that that they actually reject God who is in their midst. They say, we're so zealous for following God. This is how you follow God that they don't even know that God's with them. And, and they say, because you don't fit into our framework, into our understanding, uh, you're breaking the Sabbath and you need to be put to death, right? That's crazy. I heard of a story one time of a, of a girl that showed up at church uh, that she decided that she wanted to quit the life of prostitution that she'd been involved in. And, you know, she hadn't had time to go shopping and buy new clothes and all this stuff. And so she comes to church and she says, um, you know, I, last night I was literally in Hollywood dancing and here I am now in the valley, San Fernando Valley, and I want to go to church. And, but the handbook says that you can't dress like this in church. And so the gal was asked to leave. And um, this is the whole idea of we need to be careful about our traditions, right? We need to be careful about man-made traditions and advice and not elevating it to the level of scriptures, especially here. I want you to grab a hold of this, okay? Human rules and advice for obeying scriptures must be abandoned if they hinder the basic concern of scripture for grace, mercy, kindness, and justice. 
right? Human rules and advice for obeying scriptures must be abandoned if they hinder the basic concern of scripture for grace, mercy, kindness, and justice. Now, we're going to see that as we go through this passage here. It's a very simple outline. Uh, it's not the most clever thing in the world. Controversy one, controversy two, controversy doesn't stop people from following Jesus. There you go. All right. So number one, controversy number one. Here's the accusation. They're going through the grain fields, Jesus and his disciples, and they're plucking heads of grain and they're eating them. And then the Pharisees pop out of nowhere, it seems like, and they're like, look, they're doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath. Now, at first glance, you might think they're stealing people's grain, right? They're walking through fields. Maybe, they're, maybe the theft is like what they're accusing them of. That's not so. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 24 and 25, in the Mosaic law, it says that you can eat grain out of your neighbor's field. You can eat you know, grapes out of the vineyard. You can do that to satisfy your hunger. Now you can't go in there. It says in, in the law, you can't go in there and harvest for a week or whatever. And uh, you're not supposed to do that. But the law provides for you to go if you're hungry and just go eat something out of somebody's field. By the way, what a good welfare system, right? People, you know, give to one another. That's a good, good thing. So the Pharisees, when they said, look at your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath, it's not that they're stealing. What they're doing is they're charging Jesus' disciples for working on the Sabbath. <coughs> working on the Sabbath, okay? The Sabbath, again, is a commandment to just take Saturday off. It's Saturday, by the way. It's not Sunday. Some people will say that today. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. What are you doing working on Sunday? Hey, you don't know your Bible. The Sabbath is Saturday, and it's an ordinance for the Jews only, right? If you, um, you know, read the Old Testament, God says that this is an ordinance between you and me talking to Israel. It's an ordinance for the Jews, right? So Seventh-day Adventist and people that insist that you have to worship on the Sabbath, they have come up with that based on um, not a literal interpretation, not a you know, literal hermeneutic going through the Old Testament. Um, it overlooks kind of the Old Testament's teaching on the Sabbath. So what it is was the commandment just not to work on Saturday. You were to take that day off. You were to keep it holy. You were to worship the Lord, and you weren't to work. And that's all it said. Just don't work, you know. Uh, close your business down. Now, the Pharisees, as I mentioned, developed extensive lists. Now, if you even look online today at Shabbat.org, the same 39 main categories of work are still in place. There's 39 of them. I'm not going to read them all, but some of them were this. On the Sabbath, you're not to, do, you're not to th uh, thresh, you're not to winnow, you're not to cleanse crops, you're not to grind, and you're not to sift, right? Now, there's 39 of these different categories, and with Within each one of them, there's hundreds more of what it constitutes to do work. You can't tie a knot on the Sabbath. You can't write two letters on the Sabbath. You can't sew uh, a stitch. You can't stitch anything up. You can't take anything apart to stitch it. There's all kinds of tedious, literally hundreds upon hundreds of rules that you had to observe uh, pertaining to the Sabbath. It's interesting, by the way, how the Pharisees were so, they so defined what it meant on the Sabbath. They're like, well, we're going to figure out so we can do no work. You know, like, it's just weird how they majored on the Sabbath so much. It became, it was like their distinctive, uh, it was like the biggest observance, that and circumcision, right? And dietary laws. Those three were like the main. Now, so in the Pharisees' minds, the disciples, they're walking through the grain fields. They're grabbing heads of wheat, 
And uh, they're grabbing it and they're rubbing it in their hands. They're getting the chaff off of it and they're eating the grain out of it. And so the Pharisees are like, they're grinding, they're threshing, they're, they're working on the Sabbath. And you might think that's absurd, right? It is absurd, but that's what legalists do. <laughs> they spy on people and they find them doing the littlest thing that they think is wrong. And they go, oh, you see, you're working on the Sabbath, you know? And uh, that's what legalists do, right? Uh, not only do they do that to other people, they do that to themselves. So what Jesus is going to do now is he's going to go into Israel's history and he's going to prove to them why they're wrong for accusing his disciples uh, for uh, having, you know, wheat snack for breakfast. Verse 3, he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, those that are with him, how he entered the house of God? He ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, or those are with him, or anybody but the priests. So Jesus goes back to 1 Samuel chapter 21, and he talks about King David. And I love what he starts out with. He says, have you not read? Isn't that funny? Because the Pharisees were Bible professionals. They know the Bible better than anybody. And Jesus says, haven't you read the Bible? It's like asking Hank Hill if he has read the propane, uh, you know, <laughs> Strickland propane employee manual. I was just curious who watched, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> but, you know, you ask the Pharisees, have you, have you read this? Haven't you read what happened with David? I mean, so here's the deal. David went into the house of God. That's referring to the tabernacle. It's in a city called Nob, and the priest working there, his name was Ahimelech. You can read this First Samuel chapter 21. King David, most famous king of Israel, second king, uh, you know, it was Saul, David, and then who? Solomon. Good job. Second king of Israel. He's running from King Saul because King Saul wants to kill him and he's got a band of loyal followers with him and he is hungry. And so they're starving. And so they go to the tabernacle and uh, they say, we need something to eat. And Ahimelech says, we don't have anything to eat, but the bread, uh, the show bread. And so what happens is Ahimelech gives them the show bread. Now, here's the point. In God's law, it says in the tabernacle, there needs to be a table and it needs to have 12 loaves of bread on it continuously. They're baked fresh every Sabbath and they're put out and there's 12 of them. And they all represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And it needs a ceremonial sort of thing. This needs to be like this. So David comes and he says, hey, I need something to eat. And they look around and say, there's nothing to eat in here. What about the showbread? Well, oh, I don't know. God says nobody's supposed to eat that but the priest. David's not a priest. What do we do? Right? You see, the law even says that nobody's supposed to eat it but the priest. But in this instance, human need trumps ceremonial law. If you're in a situation where following ceremonial law to the T is that, you know, as is, is opposed to human need, human need supersedes ceremonial law. That's what he's getting at. He's saying, my disciples, you're, you're coming down on them saying that they're working on the Sabbath, which for one, they're not. But even if they were, they're hungry. And for one, they're not even doing... I love how Jesus is gracious. He doesn't even say, you're crazy. They're not threshing on the Sabbath. He just says, look, human need is more important than ceremonial law. That's what he's getting at here. Here's a good illustration. It's perfect for today. Um, what if somebody came in here super hungry right now and they said, we don't have anything to eat. You know, we, what are we going to do? And they say, 
well, there's communion bread right there. Oh, you can't eat that. That's, that bread's been set apart for communion. That's all it is. And so this, the hungry person, there's half a loaf still sitting on the table back there, or pita bread or whatever it is. But we can't give it to him because that has been set apart for communion. See what I mean? That's that same kind of heart. That's, this is how the Pharisees looked at religion. This is how they looked at God. You know, it was like it's this rules and regulations are the most important thing. Are God's rules and regulations important? Absolutely. But here's a situation where human need, you've got ceremony and human need. Imagine if Ahimelech said, no, David, you guys got to go. I'm sorry. I mean, we've got this bread here, you know, and, uh, but you can't eat this, right? Human need trumped ceremonial law in this case. If we denied somebody the communion bread because it was communion bread, God would think that's wrong. He would say, you know, human need, you need to meet these needs right here. So that's the first illustration. Even if my disciples were working on the Sabbath, there's human need here. And the Sabbath, actually, it says in the book of Mark that Sabbath was made for who? Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's supposed to be a blessing. It's supposed to be a day of rest. It's supposed to be mercy. It's supposed to be grace to man and his animals even too. And Jesus is like, you guys are just missing the point. You're so tedious about the little details of the religion that you're part of that you're missing the whole heart of God here. You don't even get the point of God. You know, like you don't, you don't understand his heart. And so that's the first illustration. Illustration two, verse five, he goes, or did you not read in the law? Oh my gosh, these guys are going to get mad. Did you not read in the law? Yes, we've read the law. Who is this guy from Nazareth telling us that we read the law? Did you not read in your Bible that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Uh, Yet I say to you in this place, there's one greater than the temple. Now, essentially what he's saying here is, is you're accusing my disciples of working on the Sabbath. Okay, well, think about this. Is don't work on the Sabbath, is that a moral absolute? Is that a moral absolute? Are there exceptions to it? What are they? You're saying, some of you are nodding yes. Well, what are they then? Obviously, there's an exception to working on the Sabbath for the priests, have you ever seen what the priests do in the Old Testament? I mean, it's like they're like butchers, right? You slaughter animals all day long. It's hard, laborious work. So obviously it's not some moral absolute because there are exceptions, right? That's what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, you're accusing my disciples of working on the Sabbath, but the priests in the temple worked on the Sabbath. But then he says, but get this, there's one standing in front of you that's even greater than the temple. And so what Jesus is saying is, the priests are guiltless for working on the Sabbath, but these guys are working. They're following me on the Sabbath, and I'm greater than the temple, right? Now, people's jaw would have dropped when Jesus said he was better than the temple. He's, it's a claim to, most scholars say this is a direct claim to deity because the temple is where God's presence visited. How much more is Jesus God in the flesh? Okay, you got the temple where the God visits Shekinah glory. He's in there. He's in that place or you've got Jesus standing in front of you. You want to condemn my disciples for working on the Sabbath? Well, first of all, human need trumps ceremony. And second of all, even if they are working, they're following me and I'm greater than this whole temple. And the priests were guilt, guiltless for working in the temple. And that's why he goes on to say uh, in verse 7, but if you'd known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless, right? First of all, they're guiltless. And second of all, what he's doing is he's calling out the Pharisees. He's saying the way that you follow God is merciless. 
you look at, you think God is just this exacting, like I need to follow these rules so specifically. And, and that's okay to follow rules, but not when it neglects mercy and love. The Pharisees' tr- interpretations of how to live out the Sabbath had become so important to them that they don't even see the fact that they're not giving love and mercy to people. Where Jesus quotes there in verse 7, that's from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I'll put that in a 2022 illustration. There might be people that give to the church. There might be people that go to church faithfully. There might be people that read their Bible faithfully, but they go around and they're merciless to other people and they don't love people and they don't do anything like that. And then they appeal to God and they say, hey God, but I've checked every single one of the boxes though. Well, God would say to you, don't you understand that like I told the apostle Paul that you could do all things, but if you don't do them with love, you're just a clanging cymbal. You're just a noisy gong. God might say to you, you check all the boxes just fine, but the box that sits on top of them is love. If you don't do everything that you're doing for Christ out of a motive of love for God and for people, you're missing the whole point of it, right? You might say, I do all these things, but then I might look at your life and say, I don't see you reaching out and loving anybody. Well, you're not doing it right. God is the God of mercy. He's the God of grace. He's the God of extending love. God took the, we need to be like God in the fact that he took the first step to come to us in love. You might be a Christian here today that checks all the boxes of what it means to be a Christian, except the fact that you're not getting out of your comfort zone and going out and loving people. You're not doing what you're doing with love, right? And that's important. That's extremely important. These guys are merciless, you know? Oh, you can't have the communion bread. You got to sit there and starve through the whole thing. You know, we're following God, though. No, you're not following God. You're following your own head. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Here's the main point of this first section of number one. If your interpretation of scriptures leads to a ritual observance that forbids hungry people from obtaining food, your interpretation's wrong. Okay, now, these Pharisees were, they were a piece of work. Don't get me wrong, they were incredibly reverent people, incredibly holy-looking people, and they loved God so much they were truly disturbed because their understanding, their handbook for their denomination, they thought was just as well to be inspired. And so they really were grieved at what Jesus was doing. They really thought he was offending God. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm, you know, I'll show you what here. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, he says. I'm the one that will interpret how you are to live out the Sabbath, right? You guys might have a thousand rules about the Sabbath, but Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'll show you how to apply the scriptures, you know. So if your interpretation of scriptures leads to ritual observance that forbids hungry people from obtaining food, your interpretation is wrong. Number two, Sabbath controversy, number two. Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue and behold, there was a man uh, who had a withered hand, literally dried up hand. And they asked him saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? The they is the Pharisees there. So imagine he goes into church, synagogue, and there's a guy that's got a shriveled up hand. It's all dried up and he's most likely hiding it. He's most likely hasn't, you know, has had this thing for a while. 
and there's a trap being set, you know, right? And so they, the Pharisees kind of, you can picture it kind of, the movie runs in your head, like they've got this guy positioned. They know Jesus will do works of compassion and mercy, so they set him up. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to get him to break Sabbath. They're trying to get him to work on the Sabbath by doing this healing. Now, you might say, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Why couldn't somebody heal on the Sabbath? Well, first of all, the Pharisees, again, had all these laws saying that you couldn't practice medicine on the Sabbath. Like if you were a doctor, you had to close down your practice and go worship all day. And that makes sense, right? We, that's common sense. If you're a dentist, you know, you need to you close, you know, Hobby Lobby does the Christian version of that. They close their business and they go and so their families can worship. So that was kind of how the law, you know, should be set up, uh, you know, in God's eyes was just take the day off of work. Well, the Pharisees said that uh, you shouldn't, you can't apply um, medicine unless it's an absolutely life-threatening situation. Now, so this guy with his withered hand, it's not a life-threatening situation, right? He's had it for a while. It's not life or death. And so they're baiting Jesus. And they say, is it lawful? Um, And so there was a group of Pharisees that said they were so strict, they said you couldn't even pray for the sick on the Sabbath. That's how they viewed it. And so is it lawful that you could do this? Jesus looks around at them, verse 11, and he says, what man among you, if he's got a sheep and it falls down into a hole, won't dig it out on the Sabbath and save its life? Now, actually, this was a debate in this day. Uh, the Essenes, have you ever heard of them? People believe John the Baptist was an Essene. They're the Qumran community. Qumran is where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. This community of aesthetic Jews, they were kind of like wilderness dwellers. They were super aesthetic. They were believed in, you know, just um, deprivation, you know, um, kind of like the Desert Fathers to some degree. The, the Essenes, they said that you can't dig an animal out of the pit on the Sabbath. You just wait till the next day. They said that you couldn't even dig a man out of a well if he fell in there with uh, any sort of utensil, a ladder, rope, anything. You'd have to leave him until the Sabbath was over. That's how strict they were about not working on the Sabbath, right? It's nuts to us, you know? Well, Jesus says, what man is there among you that wouldn't dig his sheep out? See, there was a debate in that day, and these, there were people in there that would definitely dig their animal out, and he's appealing to that, right? The Jews were actually incredibly humane people to their animals, if you read the Old Testament, incredibly humane. And so they're all thinking, well, yeah, any of us would do that rather than watch a little sheep suffer. And we dig them out. And so in a classic Jewish how much more style argument, verse 12, how much more value is a man than a sheep? Well, Jesus, if you're in 2022, <laughs> I think animals are actually more valuable than humans today, right? Like you can, you can abort them and kill them, but you have to protect like eagles, right? I don't think Jesus was an environmentalist. He says that man's more important than animal. And so that's how he appeals there. Which one of you wouldn't do this? You would do it. Of course you would dig your animal. So, so uh, you know, here's, here's this guy. He's in this position where he could be healed right now. And your interpretation of the Sabbath is he needs to wait, you know? Main point here, if your interpretation of scriptures leads to a ritual observance that requires a disabled man to remain disabled longer than he has to, your interpretation of the scriptures is wrong, right? 
You see why so many people follow Jesus? He was so good. See why he called, see why he said in that day, you people that are heavily burdened. Imagine if you tried to follow Christ in that, or you tried to follow God in those days and you had just these burdens, these thousands of rules upon you. Crazy, crazy religion. So, verse 13, I love this. This guy, I mean, you can use your sanctified imagination here. It must have been a burden, you know, in an agrarian society, right? Agricultural. Must be a pretty big burden to have one of your hands not operable. You work with your hands all day. Not this guy. Probably a burden to him, to his life, to his family. He's probably hiding the thing to some degree. You know, in Mark's gospel, it says that Jesus asked him to come up in front of everybody. Can you imagine that? You've got some sort of birthmark, some sort of defect in your life, and Jesus has come up in front of everybody, and we're going to draw absolute attention to that thing, right? And so he brings them up in front of the group, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. I always wondered, like, what, what, do you wonder what went on in this guy's mind? Stretch out my hand, Jesus? This thing has been like this. For years, man. I mean, you, and you told me to stretch it out. I, if I could do that, wouldn't I do it? But it says there, he stretched it out. That man's life was changed right then, forever. And it was restored as whole as the other. That would take a lot of faith. It's just a side note, but Jesus may ask you to do something impossible, and he might be asking you to do something impossible right now, and you might be wrestling with him, but just if Jesus says to you to do something, do it. Do it. You say, I don't know how this is going to work. Just step out in faith and just do the thing. Just do what he's telling you to. Take the very next step, the very next thing. Just do that thing, right? There's a few steps involved with this. First of all, you had to come forward, right? And, you know, take the very next step, even though you don't know how God's going to do it, right? That's what it means to walk by faith and not to walk by sight. You know Jesus is working on your conscience. Holy Spirit is working on your conscience. He says, do this. You say, I don't know how it's going to work. It doesn't matter how it's going to work. He's the answer. How's it going to work? Jesus. Now you do it. You do it today. Don't waste time, you know? Listen to him. Step out. Now, verse 14 the Pharisees said, man, this is such a great work that Jesus did. No, they go out and they plan to murder him. Now, they didn't have a lot of authority in these days. Rome prohibited them from being able to exercise the death penalty. So about all they could do is plot at this point. I will tell you what, if your interpretation of the Bible leads you on the Sabbath to go start plotting murder because somebody broke your traditions, your religion is screwed up, man. <laughs> you know, uh, it's weird. Now, who do you think was really violating the Sabbath, right? Legalism is scary, man. When you think God's just a code of rules, legalism is scary. It leads to the demonization of other people, right? It really does. You look at the dark ages. I mean, legalism leads to the demonization of other people. Legalism also leads you to demonize yourself, When you set up a whole bunch of rules and codes and conducts of how you need to live your Christian life, 
and then you don't live up to your own man-made standard and you feel condemned continuously, you feel like a worthless Christian, you feel like uh, you're not doing this thing right. I mean, God would say to you, I didn't put all that stuff on you. I told you to believe and read my word, and here you went and made up all these rules. That's, I mean, that's what Methodism was. It was John Wesley, you know, extremely zealous guy, making a list of things that he needed to do every day. Listen, I've got a list of things that I do, but I don't tell you what they are because I don't want to put legalism on you, right? There are certain shows I don't watch. There are certain things. I don't do. There's music I don't listen to. I got a whole code of things like that. There's food I don't eat. There's a whole bunch of stuff that I have rules, of, but I don't tell you about it, right? And you might have some of those codes, but you need to understand the difference between God's command and your advice, you know, and your suggestions and your rules. Because, you know, when you run into a Christian that's not joyful, you can almost diagnose it within like a conversation with them, you know, when they're not joyful consistently. Most times, what I've seen in, in my short time being a pastor, 10 years of this, going on 10 years, is the reason people aren't joyful is because they're legalistic. They're joyful when they think everything's going well, when they're, when they're following all the rules, they're joyful. And then when they, when they slip up, then they're totally condemned, right? Now, if you're walking around condemned today, is it because that you're not living up to your standard? Or is it because you're not living up to Jesus, where Jesus said, believe in me, follow me, right? His yoke is easy, his burden's light. If you're under a heavy burden, maybe you made that burden yourself. Legalism is a dangerous thing. It caused these Pharisees to go around and nitpick everybody, <laughs> you know? It caused them to decide how to put Jesus to death, um, you know? They were phonies even too. They pretended like they kept all the stuff on the outside, but they, Jesus said inside they were dead men's bones, right? Legalism's dangerous. The true and living God would uh, never allow somebody to go hungry rather than giving them the communion bread. True and living God would never require a disabled man to stay disabled a day longer if he could be healed. Um, true and living God would never condone plotting murder on the Sabbath. Now, last point, I love this section because it tells us who God really is. And uh, verse 15, but when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there. Great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. What a work. All these people that were following him, he healed them all. Nobody has ever displayed healing power like Jesus Christ. Nobody. I don't care who it is. No evangelist, nobody has ever done things like this. Instantaneously, full healed, real deal. What an act of mercy. He's giving them a taste of what heaven will be like. And he warned them, verse 16, not to make him known. He did that because it wasn't his time. On the first coming, Jesus Christ, his mission was to go to the cross and to offer salvation. His second coming, Jesus will bring judgment on the unbelieving people that have rejected him, and he'll also set up his millennial kingdom, and then he will rule and reign in a world that's ruled by Jesus Christ uh, for a thousand years is what the Bible says. And, um, but that's not his first time. There's a first coming and a second coming of Christ, and his first time, he came to go to the cross. And so Jesus, there's all this fervor around him. And they say, oh, he's the Messiah. He's the Messiah. Put him, let's just overthrow Rome, which would have been a bloody massacre, right? And so Jesus says, uh, don't make it known. Now, Matthew goes back to Isaiah and he quotes Isaiah 42 verses, I think it's one through four, to tie this to Jesus. 
And I think the reason that he does is verse 19, because notice how he, he wrote that Jesus told them not to tell anybody. And then verse 19 says, he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. I believe that's the main reason Matthew's tying that prophecy in Isaiah to Jesus right here. But within this prophecy, you get a great description about Jesus the servant, right? Behold, verse 18, my servant whom I have chosen. By the way, this was written hundreds of years before Jesus ever came, this particular prophecy, right? Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. It says the Messiah will have a ministry to Israel and the Gentile nations. He will be anointed by the Spirit, and he'll be on this mission to bring justice. Verse 19 says he won't quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone in, uh, hear his voice in the streets. The Messiah didn't come to start an insurrection. He didn't come to start a riot. And then verse 20, probably one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, well, the one in Isaiah where Matthew's quoting from. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory. Reeds, you know, you've seen the reeds, like you go to Lime Creek Nature Center, there's a little pit there and there's the reeds coming out. Reeds were actually, the, the shepherds used them to make little musical instruments out of them. But when they were bruised, they were worthless. Couldn't do anything with it. Useless. Smoking flax, you know, think about when you blow out a candle and it's just still smoking, you know, and there's, where there's smoke, there's still some life, right? But in that state, it's useless for putting off light, right? I mean, it's just a little red is glowing and the smoke's coming. Smoking flax. These two metaphors are for people. And what it's saying in Isaiah and what it's saying here is when Jesus would come, he wouldn't just toss out the people that the world thinks is u are useless. That's pretty great, isn't it? Jesus didn't come to just discard bruised people or people that their light's just about to go out. You know, he didn't, he didn't come to stamp them out. He came to build people up. He came to take that smoke where there's smoke, there's life, right? And he comes to fan that back into a flame. He comes to take people that have screwed up their lives. He comes to take people that are desolate, people that are apathetic, people that are uh, you know, disengaged, people that are disillusioned, you know, with the world, empty from their pursuit of self, all these things. And he comes, and he, you know, people that have ruined their lives with alcohol, with drugs, fornication, and he comes to build them back up. There's a book I commend to you called The Bruised Reed by Richard Sibbs. He's a Puritan. It's, it's a whole book about that first. That's Jesus. A bruised reed he won't break. Smoking flax he won't quench. That should be really helpful for some of you today. You get so down on yourself, you know? You get so down on yourself because you're looking at yourself as I fail so often. Yeah, you do. I do too. All men, all women do. But the Messiah came to build those people up, right? The Messiah didn't come for well-healed, 
you know, everybody's got everything together and take the ones that are damaged and just get rid of them. He didn't, he didn't come to do that. He came to build up people. He's gentle. This speaks of the gentle nature of Jesus, the compassionate nature of Jesus. This is who we're to be like. We're to be like that too. Let's just say a bruised reed. You, you know, people that are damaged, how do you treat them, right? People that are just, their light's just about to go out, right? They're smoking flax. How do you treat them, you know? Jesus came to build them. I love it so much. He's compassionate. He's gentle. He's one that comes to restore to life, to relight people. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29 reminds me of this. It's so good. He says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. (laughs) That's so good. That's like, I think that's my other favorite verse in the Bible. God has chosen the foolish, weak, base things in this world, the despised things, Those are what God has his heart set on. These things that everybody in this world, all these proud men with their pomp and their, you know, security and their money and their their self-sufficiency, they look at, they look out at the streets, they see homeless people, they look at people in, uh, you know, dealing with addictions, they look at abusers, they look at, uh, you know, broken homes, they look at orphans, that's weak, that's weak. Well, that's, those are the people God has his heart set on the foolish things. Why? So no flesh will glory in his presence. Nobody, there's no, there's no such thing as a great man of God, a great woman of God. I always cringe when people say that, oh, did you know him? Did you know Father so-and-so? He was a great man of God. No, he's not a great man of God. He's a weak, foolish man like the rest of us, that a great God did something with him. When a surgeon does great surgery, you don't go in and say, oh, let me see that scalpel. No, you say, what a great surgeon. You don't praise his tool. The man of God, the woman of God's a tool. The one that's wielding the tool is the one that gets the praise, right? So no flesh can glory in his presence. Oh, I'm really getting stronger the more I follow the Lord. I'm really getting more self-esteem. I'm really getting better about myself. I'm really getting built up. Oh, that's too bad because God chooses the foolish, wise, you know, uh, weak things, you know. Uh, he, he chooses the, the people that realize they're weak and need him, you know. And you're struggling after to become strong all the time. You'd be better off being like Paul said, I'll glory in my weakness, right? Because when I'm weak, he's what? He's strong, right? So good. And in his name, the Gentiles will trust. We must never let tradition get to the point to where obeying that tradition causes us to neglect the heart of God, right? And you see how dangerous that is here today. Really, the biggest application is as a Christian, man, you need to know God. You need to know God. You don't need to know so much about what people say about God as you need to know God, right? You say, well, how in the world do I get to know God? Here, it's exactly how you get to know God right here, 
right? And you spend time in this, not because you're like, oh, I've got to check the box. I got to get this thing done. Oh, I didn't do it. Oh, I'm under this heap of condemnation. No, you're a legalist. Knock it off. <laughs> you know, oh, I got to go to church. Oh, I got to give. Oh, I got to serve. You don't got to do anything, man. Don't you want to do it? There's a huge difference between gotta and wanna. If you're today in gotta instead of wanna, you don't get it, right? You need to know God and you need to know his word. That's the biggest way probably we can avoid falling into the trap like the Pharisees were. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that, uh, I love this truth, God, that a bruised reed you won't break, smoking flax you won't quench. Thank you, Lord, that you did choose us, that you did choose the foolish things, the weak things of this world. Heavenly Father, may we always have enough humility uh, to scan our lives and to always submit any rules, advice, any traditions that we have to your word. Father, may we always operate in um, being like you. Help us, Lord, as a church, family, to never allow our tradition, even though we're pretty non-traditional, we still have tradition. May, may it never trump who you are and who, what your character's like. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.